Pray with me and we'll seek the Lord's help as we return to Acts chapter 17. God of all glory and grace, we are here because of you and we need your help. Use your word to change our hearts so that we worship you as you deserve. Use your word to help us have the demeanor and character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to use your word to, to follow our Lord and to learn from the example of Paul as he follows Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. How do we begin interacting with those who have little knowledge of the one true God? How do we start our interactions with those who don't know very much about God the way that he's presented in his own revelation, the Bible? Or more likely, how do we begin interacting with those who already have a wrongly skewed perspective of who God is, and who have little or no genuine respect for the creator and sustainer of all things. We have an example from Paul's ministry in Athens, in the middle of Acts chapter 17, to the end of Acts chapter 17, an example of how he dealt with this type of context. We find Paul in Athens, and I'm calling this gospel access among the intellectual elite. How does the opportunity, coming to to have the opportunity to speak formally among the Areopagus, how does this opportunity come about? How then does Paul approach this audience? How does Paul correct secular thinking with a biblical worldview? Those are some of the things we're going to be talking about this week and next week from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. First, read with me, though the verses 16 to 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, that is his co-workers, Silas and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. What should we learn from how Paul gains this Areopagus opportunity? Follow Paul's example of faithfulness with opportunities, and you may possibly gain more opportunities. So let's focus first on how this comes about, and then we'll also talk about how Paul handles this opportunity. But how does he gain this opportunity in the first place? And in the the initial verses here, 
I'm describing this as be soul stirred to say more. Be stirred in your soul to say more. What gets Paul going? What gets him out of his seat? What causes him to be moved to action? No doubt Paul is already motivated by Christ's command that he should, they should be witnesses. He's already been obeying this command. He's the spearhead of carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. He has now traveled all the way to Europe with Silas and Timothy. He's no doubt motivated by Christ's compassion for people because they are lost, headed for their destruction. But here particularly, we see another motivator. We see Paul rising within Paul a righteous indignation for the glory of God. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Although this historically great Greek city of Athens had now been swallowed up by the Roman Empire, it was and continued to be a central example of the worship of the pantheon of Greek gods. The Romans had adopted this Greek pantheon. And so this uh, worship of many gods persisted in Paul's day. And also in Paul's day, not only did Athens have a great stadium, a large theater, and an odeon, which is a building, a building lo- or, or location for musical activities like musical shows and singing, even poetry presentations and poetry competitions, The city of Athens boasted all of those things, but it was also home to numerous pagan temples. Some of the most famous among them still have ruins at the citadel. Citadel just means a fortified hilltop above the city, and in Athens, it's called the Acropolis. There and on the Acropolis is found the famous Parthenon, the great temple to the goddess Athena. And there also still stands ruins of the Erechtheion, which was a a temple for multiple deities. Now, you can imagine yourself, you don't visit a place like Athens with its history and not look around. Paul sees all the artistic beauty in the city of Athens and the impressive architecture everywhere he looks of the temples and the statues of the Greek gods. But Paul perceives beyond the external beauty to the idolatrous purposes for their existence. The honor of the one true God is at stake. And there are thousands of hearts held captive and led away from God by this idolatry, just in this one city alone. So the the term here used of provocation, this inciting or stirring up can be positive or negative. And it's the right word because Paul's reaction, I believe, is both. The negative reaction of provocation in this case is also one and the same with positive instigation to take action. Paul is angered by sin and he's jealous for God's glory. And you may be as well, but don't stop there to be jealous for God's glory and to be angered at sin Be motivated to pray for, be motivated to interact with those yet enslaved by such idolatry as you yourselves once were. Do you remember that when we talk about what idolatry is, that it's anything that captivates our hearts and captures our love and our worship and our attention above 
the one true God. Paul is aware of the depth of deceptiveness and the destructiveness of such idolatry. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So what motivates us to say more among the intellectual elite who are hostile toward the basic truths of the gospel? And Romans tells us due to their deliberate and hard-hearted ignorance. But what motivates us Is it not the stirring of our souls for the honor of the only true God? A holy jealousy that he be glorified and worshiped and no one else and nothing else? Is it not a soul-stirring compassion for those who are held captive by the ignorant idolatry of the sinful human heart as we ourselves once were and we would continue to be without knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Be soul-stirred to say more. And then these things will get even more practical. You notice in the life of Paul that last week's uh, conversation was very theological, and we start out very theological, and now we have all these things that are very historical and very practical. But our theology always influences the practical details of our lives. So we are soul-stirred to say more and then faithfully pursue what God has already provided. Paul reasoned in the synagogue where the Jews and the God-fearers were to be found on the Sabbath. Each Sabbath, he was where we would expect him to be by his practice, we heard earlier in Acts, and then again at the beginning of Acts 17. From From the last passage, you know that Paul's reasoning in the synagogue comes from the scripture, and it focuses on Christ. Remember Acts 17, verse 3. He was reasoning with them in the synagogue from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. That's what he was doing on the Sabbath. And then during the work week, when he was likely busy, making and selling tents to provide for his needs, we find Paul in the Agora, which would have been the marketplace, or in the, in the Roman Forum, or probably both, with whomever was there. Paul would have trusted God's providence and prayed concerning whom he might encounter and witness to. Lord, I don't know who's going to be here, who's going to have a booth set up next to me, but I pray for them, and I pray that you give me clarity and boldness. Some who engage with Paul are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, if you don't love philosophy and history, just bear with me. Do your best to keep your ears open and your brain turned on, okay? Just for like two or three minutes here, let me tell you a tiny bit about the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Epicureans rooted their philosophy in the the senses and experience and not in reason alone. Senses and experience. This also led to an emphasis on natural evidence in a more scientific and materialistic approach. A key overall concept for the Epicureans was the avoidance of pain, which makes sense to any of us in our experiences, try to avoid pain. 
and in the pursuit of pleasure and happiness, but with some moral restraint to not be involved in base, base and merely temporary pleasures. In fact, Epicurus, who, from, from whom this philosophy derives its name, he realized that momentary pleasure can lead to enduring pain and that some pain can be beneficial. The overall, this overall goal of avoiding pain and strife would ultimately lead to a, a tranquil mind and a peaceful life to what they called happiness. This also meant that the prevalent view of the gods as powerful, meddling, emotional beings was a threat to that tranquility. Epicurus taught that the gods were not, in fact, like this, but were tranquil hedonists who stayed away from men. This would have run contrary to much contemporary pagan thinking of the day and obviously contrary to the personal and involved God of the Jews that Paul believed in, that you believe in. Stoicism, on the other hand, predated Epicureanism, and it was the most popular school of thought among the Roman intellectual elite. And Athens had been ground zero for the developing of this philosophy over the centuries. The thing to remember about Stoicism is logic. Logic was to be supreme over all things, leading one to seek an understanding of, of the order of the cosmos by reason, unhindered by one's experience of pleasure or pain. You should be able to rise above that and think separate from it. It was supposed to be indifferent to such things, more enlightened. They therefore also emphasized social responsibility and living an ethical life to be above these base things. Although Stoic thought would have lent itself to depart entirely from the idea of the pantheon of Greek gods, who seemed irrational and unworthy, the theology was too entrenched in all parts of society. So they took a more syncretistic approach. That means to adapt, right, with what's adopt and adapt with what's going on around. And so the more syncretistic approach led to a flexible pantheism. Pantheism is a belief that all things are part of a single divine reality, which should sound to you kind of like Oprah. The philosoph the, so the philosophical notion became that the logos, sort of like a capital term, logos, was not only the guiding principle, but the universally divine in all things. The, the logos is that divine which pervades all things. In your Bibles, John begins his gospel by declaring that the logos that some of them talked about is not some divine impersonal force in all things but is in fact the eternally existing son of the triune Godhead, whom God has revealed. The explanation for the existence and the order and the purpose of, of the cosmos is God himself. That divine logos, the word, came to enlighten us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now that would mirror Paul's thinking, but not what the philosophers he's interacting with. However, Paul's willingness to engage further with the Epicurean thinking or with the Stoic thinking gives him further opportunity for gospel apologetics. It was Paul being faithful with opportunity in the synagogue and being faithful with opportunity in the marketplace that led to a more formal opportunity with the Areopagus. But before we get there, we also learn from Paul 
not to be hindered by intellectual arrogance and persecution. You've heard me say this before, but I believe the primary way at this time in which we are persecuted in the West as Christians is through intellectual persecution. We are put down for thinking what we think, for believing what we believe, assumed to be unthinking people. But don't be hindered by that. It shouldn't surprise us, and it's nothing new. Some of these philosophers insult Paul by calling him an intellectual seed picker. That's the literal meaning of what, when they call him a babbler here in your text. He's an amateur philosopher. He's a seed picker. The term suggested one who pecks at ideas like a chicken pecks at seeds and then spouts them off without fully understanding them. We need to be thick-skinned toward personal insult. Roll with personal attack like water off a duck's back. I don't think Paul cares as much about them insulting him as he cares about gaining a hearing for the gospel. Just let it go. Don't worry about it. The only place in the New Testament we find Paul defending himself is in order to defend the gospel. But in order for uh, what, what also, if we're being insulted or persecuted, in order for such a thing to be an unfair insult and attack, we must maintain intellectual integrity. Then we can know, as Paul does, that we have no need to defend ourselves, only to defend the right way of thinking that leads people to the only true God. And as those who biblically fear God, we should understand that arrogance always betrays a degree of ignorance. Arrogance always betrays a degree of ignorance. When we're arrogant, it's because we're ignorant. When others are arrogant, it's ignorance. Knowledge of God leads you where? Tell me from your experience of being in Christ and reading God's word and growing to know him more, when you see the greatness and the grandeur of God, what does it do to you? Puts you in your place, right? When we're arrogant, it betrays ignorance. And so we, we are sympathetic about the arrogance Rather than be arrogant ourselves because of the light that God has given us, for which we are indeed grateful recipients, we must be compassionate toward others and clear in what we proclaim. Which leads us to a fourth thing in this section. When dealing with the intellectual elite, don't presume rejection, or at least don't presume rejection from everybody. Trust God and follow opportunities. Because Paul doesn't react to their mockery, they seem to take a more respectful approach. In verses 19 and 20, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. May we know more of this new teaching that it is you are presenting. For you bring some strange new things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Alternatively to this being a more respectful approach, or maybe in, in combination with slightly more respect, is that their intellectual arrogance yet compels them to view themselves and show themselves as open-minded. <laughs> Those who view themselves as most enlightened are obligated to act open-minded or at least proclaim themselves to be. Luke gives us a bit of context for their behavior in verse 21 while also showing them to be, they're in fact more idea pickers than Paul. 
All of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Luke, Luke believes that these others are the ones who have a mishmash of gods and philosophical ideas, whatever suits their fancy and their convenience. There's an irony. It is Paul who thinks and speaks clearly. And with nothing more substantial to give their lives meaning, they pass their time tickling their intellect with something new. If only our culture was so elevated as that, that because we live in such an affluent society that we, we spend our time thinking. No, we just entertain ourselves to death. Either way, and here, and their idea is that Paul also has something new. Paul will show that what he proclaims sounds new to them and does have a new climax in Christ, but it is grounded in the one true God who is from of old. Your scripture calls him the ancient of days. As we continue thinking and talking about this gospel access among the intellectual elite, let's read now verses 22 to 34, and we're just going to barely whet our appetites for talking about the, the, with greater specificity next week, but read with me verses 22 to 34. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, Adam, Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, in order that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed." And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's presentation gets cut short. At verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some people joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Having already discussed this morning how this opportunity for Paul came about and what we should learn from that, we should ask here as well, what might we learn from how Paul handles 
this more formal opportunity among the Areopagus. What do we learn about where to start gospel proclamation with those who are actively engaged in false philosophies or worldviews? A worldview is, is a way, a perspective of the world, a paradigm for viewing the world that attempts to explain and understand our existence and our experience, all of it. Again, here I have four things for us to note before even getting into the specific details of his public discourse, which we'll revisit next time. Follow Paul's example, and first of all, account for the venue, the setting, the context. Do you talk the same way in front of a large group as you do in a conversation, or differently in a group of youth than in a venue like this where we're all gathered? What are the expectations for formality, preparation, time frame, and so on? If someone speaks in my place and I don't warn them that they have 35 or 45 minutes to speak and they go an hour and five minutes, you'll probably start fidgeting. There's a time frame, just an agreed upon understanding about the setting. Or you ask yourself something like, are you in a courtroom or are you in a locker room of sweaty football players? We might also suggest here that we account for the medium as well. Are you speaking or are you writing? You see my point? You may be communicating with someone in an email and you're reminded from all your email communications and text communications that some things are not well suited to that form of communication, right? You just get yourself in big trouble. So we think account for the venue. So Paul is now being asked to transfer whatever he's been saying less formally and, and presenting less formally and discussing in the marketplace to take that and explain his so-called new teaching in the midst of the Areopagus. While the Areopagus could refer to a prominent rock, this is a rock that is near uh, that citadel hill that I told you about. And in fact, I think that because of tradition, there's a plaque on this rock that talks about Paul speaking there. I actually think the best understanding of this text, it could refer, refer to this prominent rock near the Acropolis. It's more likely that this refers to the name of the Athenian governing council, which was also called the Areopagus. And, and so this is a, a group that met and they were the ruling governing body. But this doesn't seem to be a judicial trial that Paul is, is put toward, but it's at very, at very least a more formal inquiry into what Paul is teaching. Our best understanding is that the Areopagus Council would have met in the royal stoa, the Stoa Basileus, dating all the way back to the 5th century BC. This is just a virtual rendering of what that might have looked like. And more recently, this uh, royal stoa had been repaired again after the Romans laid siege to Athens in 86 BC. Stoa, a stoa just means a covered portico that was used as a public walk, walkway or a meeting place or a marketplace. And this was one among others that encircled the Athenian agora in Paul's day. There were quite a number of these type buildings around, and this is a smaller one, but it's a famous one where the, the uh, Areopagus met, and they did so for many centuries. Now, Paul's presentation would even have been different from his formal presentations in the synagogue in various ways. Venues come with certain expectations. While this is true, 
to account for the venue, Paul must find a way to not water down or cheat the gospel. He must bravely and kindly introduce foundational truths about God and man's relationship to God in order to put the person and the work of Jesus Christ in this proper historical and theological spiritual context. Who God is and his reasonable expectation of you. Hear me, that's what I think is a good summary of what Paul begins to do first in this conversation with them in the Areopagus. Who is the one true God that you don't seem to know, and what is his reasonable expectation of you? This may only be a foot in the door for some who, who want to hear more. That's kind of what we hear at the close of this. Paul has done what he can in this formal presentation to get a foot in the door, to crack a window, whatever metaphor you want to say, so that if anyone else wants to hear more, they can still talk to Paul about this. Many are going to mock, many are going to reject, but Paul has planted a seed, we often say. Paul has gotten things started. He attempts to build a bridge for those who might listen more, establishing the supremacy of God and our accountability to him. Now, as Paul tries to transition to Christ's role in accomplishing what was necessary and mentions the resurrection, which these philosophers wouldn't have believed in, let alone our appropriate response to worshiping him as Lord, Paul loses them at the talk of Jesus' resurrection. Another thing that Paul does, and we should follow this example, is to establish credibility through goodwill and common ground. Paul is respectful in the way that he addresses them. Men of Athens, I can see that you are very religious. Although this could negatively mean superstition, very religious, it seems clear to me that Paul meant it literally and not as an insult. You are piously religious people. Paul can respect their position of authority. He can respect their serious intellect. He can even respect that they attempt to live ethically, their desire for truth, their pursuit of ethical behavior. Paul knows the foundation for these things they have is fundamentally wrong, though, which leads to errors in judgment, but he is wisely careful and measured. He's respectful. Paul establishes credibility through goodwill and common ground. But he can't leave it there. He kindly but courageously corrects the root of wrong thinking. In this too, we absolutely must follow Paul's example. We move from common ground to higher ground, or you might say to more stable ground, to better foundational truth. We don't leave people there. Eric and I had a conversation in which, sorry, Eric, I don't have your permission to talk about this. Uh, here we go. Anyways, um, Eric and I had a conversation in which he was watching a video and someone was, was presenting for others who are, who are following their example how to, how to start conversations with people about God, about theological things. But in all of the examples that were presented, it never got beyond establishing common ground. That just isn't good enough. It's not good enough for us to just be friendly, kind, good citizens, and we should be all of those things. But that is not what we're doing. We go from common ground to higher ground, to better ground, to more foundational truth. These people are headed in the direction in which you once were, which is destruction. 
They're on the wide road that leads to destruction. You're telling them to enter by the narrow gate, to follow only this straight way, only this way. Everything that diverges off of this will not lead you to the glory designated for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Paul corrects without being condescending. We must be fair to their ideas and the way that they think. In your logic class, they'll tell you not to build straw men, right? Build a veritable steel man. I was having a conversation with a friend online and on the phone, and he I was so pleased that he said to him, this is a a guy who essentially left the faith. He was among us. But he said, Jeff, you have constructed a veritable steel man of what my view of the world is. And so in my conversation with him, I was being fair to what he actually thinks and believes. Paul is not rude, but he doesn't shy away from the risk that this correction entails. Next week, we'll see more specifically as we focus on Paul's approach, correcting the root of their wrong thinking. He says something like this, you try to cover all your bases with with even having an an inscription to an unknown God. (laughs) You worship so many gods, you have one to an unknown God, just in case you've missed some. You're missing that this is the one true God who created everything and sustains everything, and he deserves your undivided worship. For now, take opportunity to contemplate the point that we should consider what is at the root of wrong thinking in order to know where to start and what to emphasize in particular with a given opportunity. Again, note how Paul's approach in the synagogue is different than here. These two previous practices that we're talking about, about uh, building credibility and goodwill with common ground and correcting the root of wrong thinking, it necessarily means that you have to know something of what your audience knows. That's a lot of work. Know what your audience knows. Obviously, you can't know everything, but you must know some of what your audience knows and how they think. Paul even quotes their own poets whom they would at least respect for their thinking and their craft in verse 28. By contrast, nothing will end a hearing with the self-proclaimed intellectual elite like poorly researched facts and unfounded claims. So be prudent and humble and don't talk about what you don't know, but do the work and know some of what your listener knows. Know your audience. You can picture and personally experience the validity of this principle, not only among the intellectual elite, but in dealing with world religions and large religious cults. What are the major beliefs that they hold? What are the hidden differences? And in, you can imagine this being so necessary in cross-cultural contexts. The difference between entering into the Yanomamu tribe to interact with them What do they know and already think and already believe? Or when you go to the urban island, the city-state of Singapore, 
What do, how do they think? It's already going to be very different than the way that you think. We must understand that. Before being able to get a hearing, you're going to have to listen well and do a lot of homework. So all of these things, in all of these things, I'm reminded that, yes, it's very practical. Yes, it's a lot of hard work. So as we take these opportunities, so much of this application is is very, very practical. But be reminded that you do this because you are motivated in gratitude to God, knowing what he has done for you, what he has commanded you to do. The same privilege of belonging to God is the great responsibility to be his child, his soldier, his citizen. You're a foreigner passing through. So it is right that we must not be complacent, but should be fervent in prayer and diligent in planning. And that is true. We must also remember that the God whom Paul preaches is the God in whom Paul trusts. We have cast ourselves in with Christ as his fully invested vessels, but we do not trust in ourselves. We trust in him. Let's pray as the praise team returns. Father, we do thank you for your grace to us, for rescuing us and giving us new life so that we can respond in faith to Jesus Christ. We thank you for that great privilege, Lord. We thank you for allowing us to be a part of your army, a part of your family. We we can see that in Scripture, we gain such a, a better theological understanding for why we do things and also how we do things. So Lord, help us to follow some of these principles that we see in, in the uh, life of the Apostle Paul. Be gracious to us and give us guidance by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen.